Why is the American military afraid of its own transgender troops? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Could it be that the American military is, in many ways, a microcosm of our country's overall culture? The old picture has been glorious, straight, strong white men standing tall with massive weapon systems beating the frightening foreign enemy, protecting our Western culture against those who would destroy it. Since the Spanish-American War of 1898, our American military has dominated the world. And aside from 9-11, we have indeed been a land free from foreign attack. A strict chain of command is essential to successful military function and has been pretty much the ultimate definition of powerful, unquestioned masculinity. But here we are in the 2020s, and as with the rest of the country, our military is far more diverse now. And clearly, that has not diminished our country's military efficiency or effectiveness. In the First World War, Americans of African descent were routinely relegated to lesser jobs because there was the belief that they were just not as capable. Boy, did they prove that to be wrong. It turned out that despite the institutional doubt and prejudice, some of our best fighters happened to be black. Almost a hundred years later, the odious Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed and the LGB community declared a major victory. Note I said LGB, not LGBT, as is commonly said, because the T, transgender persons, were left out. Now comes a new book, With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words. At last, bringing into focus the challenges and opportunities for transgender people in the military. With us today is co-author Bree Fram. Bree is a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Space Force who has held command at the squadron level, led Air Force security cooperation with Iraq, led space acquisition programs, and she's president of SPARTA, a transgender military advocacy organization, is currently the highest-ranking out transgender officer in the U.S. military. Bree Fram, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Live. It's my pleasure to be with you, Bert. Thanks for having me. If even thought of at all, transgender people in the military are thought of as being rare. What What's the reality in terms of numbers? So the reality is unknown to a certain degree because the Department of Defense can't actually ask if anyone's transgender and no one is required to tell. Yeah. So in a weird way, it's a, it's a bit of a throwback. Uh, but estimates are out there uh, using a number of different methods that put the numbers somewhere between eight and 15,000 service members across all the service components. Uh, so I would put that as relatively accurate given all that I know. Uh, and, you know, I know probably 2,000 different trans service members. So uh, it's 
it seems pretty accurate that you're probably in the 10,000 range or so. It's not huge, but it's not small. That's a lot of people. I don't know how big the military is in general, but that's still a lot of people. And interesting how, you know, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed for uh, gay people, but not not the T. And uh, there's still work to do. My goodness, there always seems to be. It used to be a lot of people thought openly gay people would somehow present a danger to military exercises and actual combat. The hetero straight majority didn't know their buddies sharing foxholes under fire were gay. As it turns out, Americans learned from experience that it didn't matter one bit. <laughs> so not surprisingly, there was a lot of celebrating when in 2011 Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. That discriminatory law had been supported by both the Clinton and Bush administrations. Barack Obama was the president that made the change. But trans people were left out. They continued, and some may still, to serve in silence out of necessity and, who knows, perhaps fear. Tell us a bit of the back-and-forth history of trans troops just in the 21st century. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention that because the last 10 years since the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell have absolutely been a roller coaster. We certainly can look back further, and there are many documented cases of, of trans people serving in the Civil War and, and others going back as far as the founding of this country. Uh, but recently, the focus really is on what does it look like in the past 10 years? Because trans people were in that position after Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, asking, well, what about us? Is is it our time? Can right. we serve openly and authentically now? Uh, and the thought was, we were probably 10 to 20 years away at that point from getting to open service as attitudes continue to change. But thanks to the efforts of some incredible heroes, uh, both trans service members who stood up and were willing to risk their careers mm. uh, prior to the change of policy, and some amazing allies who came to our, our aid and were able to get into the places that trans service members could not or represent us publicly when we couldn't share our identities uh, and make that change to push for trans inclusion in the military. Uh, and thankfully, they mission accomplished in 2016 uh, when in June the Department of Defense and Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter announced that trans people could serve openly. So that was a, a high, uh, this euphoria that yes, we can be ourselves, we can be authentic, we can reach our full potential as individuals and as people serving our nation. Uh, but then it was shortly 13 months later uh, that you had President Trump tweet that transgender people were a burden on the military and should not be allowed to serve in any capacity. So, yeah, talk about going from a high to a low. Of how do we respond to that? What does a tweet mean? Is it an order? How do we figure this out? Um, and a lot of intervening history in there that we can get into if you'd like, but we eventually get back to that point where in 2021, President Biden reversed the policy with another executive order, allowing trans people to serve openly again. Amazing. And uh, it, it, the, the phrase, the word burden, you know, I, I will confess I have not served in the military, but one would think if, if more people who are ready and able, who are you know, fit, who are dedicated, 
you don't want more people like that? <laughs> That's a burden on you? <laughs> it just seems a little bit nuts. But then again, it was Trump. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it was it was an interesting time because in that intervening time period and also shortly thereafter, you had all members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff testify to Congress that trans people weren't an issue. So it really was kind of an, an out of the blue thing of, you know, where is this notion of burden coming from? <laughs> and so much of it was based on the same fallacies that had been thrown against African-Americans, against women, against lesbians, gays, and bisexuals who had served in the past. And every time, as you mentioned in the open, you know, we proved just how unfounded those things were, that you know, people would be a disruption to unit cohesion or simply weren't capable of accomplishing the mission. So all those groups in the past uh, accomplished those things despite the objections, and the same things were thrown at trans people. Absolutely amazing. And there's so many examples of, you know, people being afraid of somebody who's not exactly like they are. And as it turns out, wow, they work together. You know, they, they save each other's lives sometimes. And boy, we are slow learners in this country. <laughs> seems to me. I don't know. Um, how did you come up with the title of this new book, With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words? Well, the title, especially that With Honor and Integrity, you know, those are some key core values of almost all the military services. As, as you look across, you know, what they say is most important. You know, these are some themes that keep coming over uh, or coming up over and over again. So, and that's what we wanted to show is that trans people are living up to the core values of the services. They are serving with honor. They are, you know, following an, a path of integrity where they don't have to lie about who they are. And we saw so many examples of this during the don't ask, don't tell period, you know, where it wasn't the fact that, you know, we couldn't ask or tell. It was it was the fact that people had to hide their identity really? uh, that caused a detriment to units accomplishing their mission. So we wanted to show the uh -huh. same thing with trans service members, that they're out there accomplishing the mission here at home and abroad around the world uh, with honor and integrity. Sounds like a perfect title for it. Now, <clears throat> cultural change, I believe, precedes political change, but cultural change itself never comes easily or quickly. Data and numbers rarely, if ever, convince enough people and help move the needle enough to achieve change. Your book uses something other than data and numbers. What's, what's the importance of personal stories, do you think, in affecting public consciousness? How do you see it being perhaps the best way of reaching and connecting with non-trans people? Well, that is is a great question. I do, before I answer that one, want to say we have the data and the numbers too, uh, but right. this story is so valuable in a way of making that person-to-person -person connection, of understanding why someone is who they are, what they care about, and why the wider public should care. And so interestingly, when I look back at the tweets that, that President Trump sent out saying that we were a burden, I look back and it's kind of an ironic thank you, because what he did was shine a spotlight on our service that uh. had never been there before. 
And all of a sudden, you had a transgender drill sergeant uh, in People magazine. You had a transgender military couple uh, go on the Ellen DeGeneres show uh, and so many others out there in the media getting those stories out there. And it was those stories that made a difference because we could see their humanity. We could see their competence and we could see the fact that all they wanted to do was serve. So Mm. to throw some numbers out there, when uh, President Trump tweeted about 50% of the American public and 50% of the military was in favor of trans people being allowed to serve. Two months later, after that media attention, those numbers were up around 70% in both cases. And two years later, in the high 80% range. Yeah. I, I used to say uh, that that uh, during the anti-war movement in Vietnam, yeah, I'm that old. Uh, that uh, uh, Nixon was our best organizer. <laughs> Seems like Trump has been an amazing organizer. There's nothing like adversity to pull people together and to focus on the job that needs to be done. Uh, good old Trump. What a, you know, a never-ending uh, source of entertainment. I guess that's probably the best you can say about him. Uh, <clears throat> now it's. As a straight white male, I can't imagine what it's like to have to every day conceal one's identity, what it's like to have to balance the military's professed values of honor and integrity against against who you are. Talk about that, please. Yeah, that is a a huge challenge for people. And the reason why it's not just important to the individual, but it's important to the military and the organization is because when people have to protect their identity, they can be good at their job. They might even be able to be great at their job, but they can't be their best because what happens is that you have to have this filter that lives in your brain and it sits in between your thoughts and your actions or the words that come out of your mouth. And what that does is it slows you down. It may be a fraction of a second, but it slows you down Uh, and it, it limits you because you are spending all this mental energy on protecting your identity that instead could be spent on accomplishing the mission. So if we choose to discriminate in a way that forces people to protect their identity, we are self-limiting our capacity um, as an institution and as a military. See, it makes a lot of sense to me, the idea of efficiency and effectiveness. You know, that's you know, you got it. It's important in general and more important in the military. It just, that's the way it is. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about uh, trans people in the military, what what the reality is, why it's been difficult, and, and where we go from here. Our guest today is Bree Fram, who is a, who's got a new book out, co-author with uh, Mael Emser Herbert. Uh, the book is With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words. And, and we're going to get to some of those own words eventually and, and how important it is to have personal stories. And humans everywhere, in all times, in all cultures, often, not always, but often fear what they don't know. They fear what they don't understand. And fear is incredibly powerful as it so often leads rather directly to hate. Fear has been called a mind killer. For decades, straight people 
didn't know they knew gay people and were fearful of the effect of gay people that they didn't know they knew huh, on the dominant culture. Why has the military feared the open presence of trans people? What about that, that fear? Where, where does that come from? What's going on with that? So I think a lot of that is just, as you said, it's kind of rooted in ignorance and that people don't know trans people. Uh, and you can look at studies that have been done um, over the, the decades showing how so few Americans as recently as, as 10 years or so ago knew a trans person. Trans identities were often incredibly stereotyped in the media or sensationalized. So that bleeds in to our general views. And if the view of the military is that all trans women are emotional messes and all trans men are steroidal raging maniacs, you know, uh, yeah, if, if that's what you think, I can understand why you might uh, believe that we would be a challenge in the military. But nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we are people uh, just like everyone else that have the same hopes, dreams, uh, challenges and, and fears. Uh, but we want to serve for the same reasons. We have the same capability and capacity to serve. And importantly, we have the willingness and the desire to serve. And more than anything in an area or in an era where we have an all volunteer force, that is critically sure. important. It is. And, and, and the power of fear, and politicians know that, and, and they manipulate fear for their own benefit. And it, it does cause a lot, a lot of harm, real harm to a lot of personal people. And I just, you know, I, I you know, when we, we didn't, people, you know, white people who don't know black people sometimes can be afraid. They have all these images and afraid of gay people and, and this fear. Yeah, if if we only knew that we knew a lot of people who were, you know, gay or trans or whatever, and like, oh, doesn't matter, <laughs> just like anybody else. But we we have to to get there, and and in the situation in the military is uh, is significant. And in the first World War, with which I am obsessed, as regular listeners know, Black Americans were segregated, but. Many proved to be amazing, amazing fighters, pilots. In World War II, Alan Turing was a British scientist and a pioneer in computer science who developed a machine that helped break the German Enigma code, saving untold number of lives. He had to hide his homosexuality, and when it was found out, his heroism got no recognition, and worse than that, Homosexuality was a crime at the time. Actually, I know it's hard to believe homosexuality was a crime. And he was convicted and ended up killing himself. Many saw the movie The Imitation Game about him. Powerful stuff. The point is, there has always been gay men in the military, though it was kept secret. My question is, have transgendered individuals always served in the military? You mentioned a little bit about uh, the American Civil War. Have they always served in the military? Absolutely. And there are statistics from the, the Veterans Affairs Administration uh, that have showed that trans people have actually served at twice the rate 
of their cisgender or, in other words, non-transgender counterparts. So there's a huge trans population, hundreds of thousands of, of transgender vets. Uh, and there is documented evidence uh, going back certainly to the Civil War and likely beyond. Uh, people like Albert Cashier, who served in the Illinois uh, National Guard uh, fought in a number of battles, was a prisoner of war, escaped, um, and and ended up being uh, buried in 19, I want to say 15, with full military honors, even though it had been discovered that, you know, he was a transgender person. Uh, and it's pretty incredible to look back, though it starts to get difficult when you look back because at a certain point, the language wasn't there to describe mm -hmm. transgender people. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, you know, many of them served, again, protecting their identity. So the documentation just doesn't exist. Uh, but they were definitely there uh, dating back as far as we can tell. It's like I, I remember when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, there was uh, uh, some legislation about uh, uh, equal rights for all. And there was a bunch of uh, students from from. Uh, certain schools who came in, young kids, who didn't understand, they, they didn't realize that uh, just gay people were always there. And they, they were, I think, that was specifically left out of the education. And there was real fear and, and the power of that fear, once again, I just, uh, it's amazing they, that they don't understand. It's always been there. It's always been there. Somehow they thought it was new, you know, because people are, open about it but you know in animals and humans you know and we're gonna and over the next few weeks on this show be talking about uh, uh the the wide variety and the spectrum it's not just you know too easy to identify uh you know stereotypical genders anyway mm -hmm. back back to your book what tell us a little bit more about how the the effect that the Trump presidency had on morale for trans people in the service. And, and your book does a lot of uh, personal stories. I wonder if, you know, and that's the way to communicate. I always think personal stories are the way to go. Uh, tell us about some of the personal stories that you've heard about the effect of, of Trump on, on morale for trans people in the service. Yeah, morale was a, a difficult one to deal with because, you know, you have your commander in chief tweeting that you as a transgender service member are, are a burden that, that can't be allowed. Uh, and that's an immense psychological burden to carry, no matter whether you believe it, internalize it or what. Uh, the fact that it's out there is challenging. And so when the tweets first came out, uh, a big challenge was what do we tell our folks? How do we move forward? And the best advice we could give to any transgender service members at the time was, you've got a mission to do. You need to lace up your boots, go into work, and get the job done until or unless you are dragged kicking and screaming away uh, from what you have committed your life to uh, engage in. And that's really what we had to focus on during those years was do the job to the best of our abilities so that we proved over and over again how illogical the reasons behind this proposed ban were. Mm -hmm. um, but it was it was difficult. And even as court cases uh, were launched against this policy, um, 
And the courts tended to find over and over again uh, that the policy was incorrect. What was really scary for trans people still serving was that in the policy, it said that should a court find this policy to be discriminatory and unconstitutional based on the example of our service, the policy that allowed those few of us who had been able to continue to serve to do so mm-hmm. would be cut and we would immediately be um, removed from the service. So incredibly dangerous. You know, it felt like that executioner's axe was hovering behind your neck and could fall at, at any time. Uh, but we persevered. The resilience of transgender service members is incredible. And I am so proud of all the service members, particularly the, the contributors that you get to read about in this book and so many others that they held up through that. They got the job done and came out the other side. Maybe you can share one or two of you know stories that illustrate that, their actual personal lives uh, and stories that you uh, heard and got. Yeah, there are a ton of, of great stories, and, and I encourage folks to uh, pick up the book. We have stories from different services, different time periods that everyone has, has lived through. Uh, and some people you know, found that these times were, were not ideal. Uh, but so many just pressed through. Um, and the story of, of Chris Moore is is one of my favorites. And, and Chris is a lieutenant uh, in the Navy. And Chris talks about the time at which, you know, he was serving aboard a ship and he got called into his captain's office and he saw on the screen on the, the television was news up and it said something about, you know, Trump to ban transgender service members. And he recalls that he he just he couldn't hear anything. It was like all of a sudden there was this buzzing in his ears, like a bad audiogram. Um, of, oh, oh, my. What what is this? You know, try and work through that. But then to get the reassurance from the people that served around him, his captain and, and others that, you know what? They have your back. Um, they care about you as an individual and what you bring to the team. Um, and that's just one example out of so many of these people that just wanted to serve. They were there to do their job, and they had to work through these incredibly difficult circumstances. I, I can just imagine, and uh, as you talk and describe it, and being some of it a history buff, the fact that that I'm Jewish, and there might have been times, and you know, there were times in in, in World War One. There were a lot of uh, Jewish and Austria-Hungary uh, uh, Jewish men who fought for their nation, and you know, if they if they knew they had to hide that, oh my God! I mean, the the fear, you know, being found out for who you are. I mean, just, and I think personal stories can do that, connect like, wow, what would that feel like? That's just the story you describe of, of, of the person going in there and, and seeing Trump on there and doing that. It's like, ah, I can imagine. And uh, I am not a woman, <clears throat> excuse me, so reproductive rights do not affect me directly. I I have been an escort for women in the early 80s as they dealt with horrible harassment entering uh, clinics, health clinics. I'm not gay, but I, but I have family and friends who are, and I, of course, take a stand for their rights. I do have friends who are trans, too. And 
all, frankly, I care about is if they're Democrats. That, that's me. Uh, tell us, please, about the importance of allies for marginalized groups. Yeah, allies are incredibly important. Uh, in, in our case, it was it was so much early in the fight about being able to be the public face when transgender service members still had to hide their identities. But the resources that allies can often bring, whether it's getting people into the rooms where uh, decisions are being discussed or policy is being made, that's valuable. Amplifying our stories is huge uh, for what allies can do. Uh, if someone knows a trans person and is willing to share their story, uh, to speak up on their behalf when they're not in a room, that is absolutely vital. Um, and then the, the simple things that anyone can do, like writing or calling your legislators, um, donating to organizations if you're capable that you know support human rights, uh, that's incredibly important for allies because so often the communities that are fighting for these rights are under-resourced. Um, and allies can bring so much to the table uh, that makes a difference. I'm sure, and and this is a little bit off topic, but I'm just thinking about, uh, I know there have been bills in the various different state legislatures banning uh, the use of, of public bathrooms by trans people. And it just, you know, it's like, what are these people afraid of? The, 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 the real, clearly, the overwhelming number of child abusers are from straight people. I mean, it's just... That's a fact. It's demonstrably true. But the fear, you know, it's just getting through the fear. I think, you know, how have you found, what, what works at getting through this fear, this uh, totally unrealistic uh, fear, and fear is unrealistic, it's not rational. What about getting through that fear? How, what have you discovered that, that works on that? So that is one of the most challenging things any of us in these advocacy spaces face is how do we first get the people that are afraid to listen? Uh, and if so, how do we make a connection that resonates? Uh, it, for the latter part, it's it's really to me about sharing some version of humanity that connects with them. Uh, you know, realizing that we have some of the same hopes and dreams that they do. We want the same amazing things for our children uh, that they're looking for for their children. But whether it's connecting over a sports team, uh, a a shared interest. Um, or anything else, it's finding that one little bit of humanity that you can connect with that uh, person over. Yeah. Um, but first, you have to get into that space. And I think that's where where we still tr struggle, because if people are living in bubbles where mm -hmm. they don't want to listen, you're in your own circle, that's difficult. And so often, it that's where it may require that ally who has the access or in the case of you know trans people, often that means a family member uh, coming out, and then that kind of spreading uh, to to the wider circles uh, that those people are involved in. Uh, but it's difficult uh, because yeah. sometimes it just doesn't work in that case, and you know those people that come out and try and make a difference get thrown out of those circles. Boy, I, I find that uh, one of the aspects of fear is that 
people dig into that fear. They're sort of, the fear is somehow in a bizarre way reassuring, and they don't want to face it. They refuse to face it. They prefer to stick with that. It's what they know. It's really hard. <laughs> You're right. It's it's very hard to reach people who who choose to be in that in that bubble that's afraid of things and and they just I, I there was uh, somebody posted a while ago on Facebook about uh, oh the whole thing with the uh, teachers now you know they don't want to teach critical race theory which of course they're not doing until graduate school but one mother wrote in saying I don't want any history to interfere with the beliefs I'm trying to raise in my kid like okay don't don't want to know the reality. You just want to stick with these beliefs. It's an interesting subject, and there's a lot to work on. And every now and then, we seem to be making progress. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And, and one of the things about keeping democracy is uh, freedom to be ourselves, to participate as who we are. What a concept. Our guest today is... Uh, uh, Bree Fram, who's uh, uh, author of uh, co-author of a new book, "With Honor and Integrity: Transgender Troops in Their Own Words," and she is president of Sparta, a transgender military advocacy organization, which we will get to before the end. Uh, and <laughs> a common argument, as you know, from those who would deny trans people from serving in the military, is that their presence would be disruptive. There, it reminds me of, and there are still a lot of Americans who truly believe Obama's presence in the White House was disruptive, that he is responsible for the rise of open racism, that somehow he's responsible for that rise of racism. What about this argument that trans people serving openly would be disruptive and, and how maybe that relates to the story of uh, you know people believing that, that Obama is responsible for racism? So... We can look not just at trans people, but just about anyone else uh, that is any other groups, again, African-American women, uh, lesbians, gays, bisexuals that have been incorporated in. And all of them had that argument that they would be the disruption to unit cohesion uh, thrown at them. And in, in every case, it's not those people that are the disruption. It is the people fighting not to have them there who instead yes. of focusing on the mission, choose to focus on being discriminatory <laughs> and pointing out the flaws that they perceive in others instead of realizing that by doing that, they are taking away from the accomplishment of the mission. So it's a real backwards argument from my perspective, whenever you say it's the people who are there and just want to do their job that are causing the problem instead of the people that are causing a ruckus and saying, oh, my God, this guy is falling. Uh, how can we live with these people within within our ranks? Uh, that's really the challenge we have faced, not people getting integrated who just wanted to do the job. President Obama wanted to do the job. And and I I really was surprised. I, I sometimes my naivete surprises me. I I thought, wow, we got a, a black African American president. That's a big blow against racism. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> it just you know it, it's sort of people focused on that. And and I I wonder if uh, I I would I'd be a little bit surprised. But then again, uh, if trans people being more open and out. Uh, if if maybe hopefully that cools things down, people are less afraid. But sometimes 
It works the opposite way. I don't know if there's any uh, evidence of, of that either way. Yeah, it's certainly a, a double-edged sword. As more trans people feel comfortable enough mm-hmm. to come out and show who they really are, that's a wider population that will then encounter the people that hold views that trans people shouldn't exist or are some form of an abomination. Yeah. Uh, and they tend to be really loud. So we're kind of at that nexus where you have both uh, a loud and hostile element along with a larger segment of the population that is coming out in order to try and be their best selves. Mm-hmm. So hopefully it's a point that we can get through. Um, and while people change hearts and minds, those voices that are loud and opposed tend to diminish. Oh, that's so good to hear. And I think you're right. And it, it's important to to recognize that the ones that are loud and angry and hateful today sometimes that fades with time when they realize, hey, you know, there was nothing to be afraid of. There was nothing to be afraid of. I I have faith that that does work. And one question is about uh, medical needs. Some trans members of the military face unique medical needs, such as requiring hormone replacement therapy or or surgical gender-affirming procedures. Do you think the government should cover the costs? How has the medical argument been used as a way to keep trans people from serving. So the, the medical argument has, has certainly been weaponized as, as a way to try and keep trans people from serving. Uh, but interestingly, when we earlier talked about, you know, your data, uh, one of the things that was out there is the Pentagon commissioned a study on what the expected costs of transgender service would be. And when they finally got data, uh, the cost came in at a less than a third of what was predicted. So you can say that trans people are one of those few rare Pentagon projects that comes in on time and under budget. Uh, but interestingly, uh, Trans folks have the same deal with the Department of Defense that every other service member does. And what that is, is that the department is going to provide all necessary medical care to make you the most effective service member at doing your job, whether it's at home or on the battlefield, that it can be. And so what trans people are receiving is care deemed medically necessary by their military service provider and their their military doctor. Uh, So we are giving them the care that is going to make them the most effective of the team that they can be so that they are best able to accomplish the mission. That's what's important. So is it in the national interest to have the government cover medical costs? Uh, absolutely, that it is in the national interest for the military to cover all medically necessary care that makes its service members their most effective selves. I like that. That makes sense for everybody. And, uh, and do you think that a military without transgender people could someday be just as unconscionable and unthinkable as it is to think of today's military without black or women or openly gay service members. Tell us, please, what you found in your survey of 125 transgendered people about their accomplishments in the year since, even though they had been banned by Trump's policy. 
So you used, you know, one of my favorite phrases to think that it, it will be unconscionable uh, in a few years if it isn't already uh, not to have transgender service people in the military, just as it would be to imagine our military without uh, any other minority group that's come into the service. Uh, but I thought that the first time, too, and we saw a year just 13 months after open service was announced, uh, the United States did go back on those policies and re-institutionalize discrimination. So I am hopeful that with several more years, uh, we will get to that point. Uh, but I'm also realistic that we may need to move in another direction and hopefully get a law in place uh, that provides the opportunity for people to serve regardless of gender identity. Uh, but you also pointed to uh, a survey yeah. uh, that we did within Sparta as uh, we came up on the one-year anniversary of the ban. So we did this study in, or this survey in, in April of uh, 2020. And, you know, we just asked, hey, um, among these, these service members, have you been promoted? Have you deployed? Uh, have you won an award? And, I mean, the results were stunning uh, when you look at that small subset, you know, having in that year uh, won something like 51 medals uh, we had 20 or 30 promotions. Uh, four people were serving in command positions. Uh, and, and it was incredible that despite being formally banned, this small group of service members was excelling. They were getting the mission done and they were being recognized for their accomplishments. That's great. That's great to uh, to have the evidence and say, hey, I'm contributing. Um, and with Bri Biden as president, the rights of trans people in the military are protected, at least for the next four years. Uh, as and you know, as his orange predecessor was an enthusiastic backer of white straight male domination and control, in so many ways. Tell us, please, about the concern of a future Trumpist or right wing administration, and what trans people in the military can and may be doing to prepare. Because you don't know after uh, after Biden. Yeah, what trans people are going to do to prepare is what we've done all along. It's accomplished the mission um, and continue to share stories like you'll find in the book about our honorable service and the things that we are accomplishing on behalf of this nation. I did mention earlier uh, trans people will will continue to raise their voice and advocate for um, a law that will enshrine the opportunity to serve. And, and critically, I say opportunity. No one is asking for the right to serve, uh -huh. but the opportunity to serve should you meet all other um, necessary uh, qualifications for the military, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of gender identity. So if there is a law in place, now it's not to say that a law can't be repealed or overturned, replaced, uh, but it makes the bar a little bit higher in terms of how a future administration would have to go about attempting to uh -huh. remove transgender people from the military. Um, but again, the bottom line is we're here, we're serving, we're going to continue to accomplish the mission that our commanders give us, uh, and we're going to make sure we do that until we're no longer in the military. It sounds like that applies to everybody in the military. Imagine that. One, one concept equal for all. And in, in the path toward ultimate just acceptance of trans service members fo following a si similar 
trajectory as it did for women and African Americans. Is that a similar path, do you think, toward acceptance of that? And what are the some of the similarities and or unique challenges as it compares to uh, the challenges for women in the military and African Americans in the military? I, I think you're right that we are going to be on a relatively similar path in terms of acceptance. It takes time. And as mm. we've incorporated these groups into the military, uh, what's what may be challenging and takes a little bit more time is that they tend to be smaller and smaller groups, um, at least initially. Uh, but trans people are always going to be a relatively small group. Even if we get to the numbers where, say, you're 1% of the military, that's tiny um, in comparison to every other group, where even, you know, gay and lesbian service members may be 5 or or even up to 10% uh, of the military. So there's still that educational piece uh, that we need to get out there because right now, so many trans service members end up being the first one in their unit, uh, the first one in their career field, um, or the first one anyone has met. Uh, so there's a lot of educational burden that tends to fall onto our service members just to explain who they are uh, and why they serve. Uh, and eventually that's going to diffuse throughout the service. Uh, but I'll point to a quote, um, I'll, I'll paraphrase it a little, that it's in the book from uh, Master Sergeant Jamie Hash, who is also uh, an Air Force member. Uh, she said that she'll never forget her commander's words when they had a meeting about her transition. He said that while this is a big deal for her, it's not a big deal for the squadron. Right. That she's still the same non-commissioned officer who just won a quarterly award and is still the same high performer they've always known. So we face right. this kind of environment in the military where we value performance and trans people are out there performing. It does. Yeah, that's the only measure I would think. You, you spoke with, with many people who were the first trans person in their unit or organization at one time or another. You say, quote, being first is an awesome responsibility, but it could also be a heavy challenge. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, it's that, that effort, that burden that you have to educate people around you because so many people come from a place of not knowing, not understanding. Or again, if you're the first, um, what an opportunity to set or break someone's stereotype. And I had a, a commander uh, that retired about eight months after I started working for him. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he called me into his office um, right before he retired. And he said, you broke my stereotype just by showing up to work and getting the job done every day. And I was like, wow, sir, that's a really backhanded compliment because what a low bar. Um, but thank you. I'm glad I had the opportunity to show you that, you know, trans people are just like every other service member. Uh, that, you know, we don't have a second head growing out of our shoulder. We aren't the boogeyman. Exactly. Uh, we're here to get the job done. Uh, so it's that opportunity to change hearts and minds. But it's also that, oh, I have to explain this 
again uh, when it comes up. And and that can get repetitive and, and difficult uh, for some people. I can't imagine. I really can't. Very informative book. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we all have our rights and responsibilities. We're talking about trans people in the military. Our guest today is Bree Fram, who uh, is co-author of the book With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words. And uh, quite frankly, the American military is unfortunately known for some ugly, ugly racist and sexist incidents. Been a lot of them in the news in recent years. What is the the status of those things? I mean, that still sort of strikes me as like, you know, an ingrained white male dominance and control culture. Is meaningful change happening in the military? I think so. I think we're making really good progress. Uh, So many times in the past, these conversations have around racial disparities um, or, you know, sexual violence have started, uh, you know, you make a headline or two and then uh, it just kind of fades away. Right. But we have seen sustained effort and progress um, in terms of the conversation continuing to move. Uh, and you've seen recently uh, a number of racial justice disparity reports uh, coming out of you know the Department of the Air Force, my service, so I'm a little more attuned to those mm. than than the others, um, and getting continued discussion from our Secretary of the Air Force, from the Chief of the uh, Staff of the Air Force, the Chief of Space Operations, and other senior leaders, saying this is a priority for us. Ah. We need to go after this. We can't just gather the data and say it's a problem. We need solutions. Um, And to try and engage leaders on all levels for how to make a difference, how to set the command climate where we can improve outcomes for all individuals, that's critically important. And it's going to take that sustained pressure, not just the flash in the pan. We had an incident. Here's what we're doing. It's a sustained long-term effort to get better. Yeah, so often in in ugly incidents like that, there's the, as you say, the flash in the pan and it just sort of goes away. But you're right, it it absolutely takes a sustained effort, even though it's not in the news anymore. And I want to ask, are, are, are the rank and file people in the service more open to serving alongside LGBT individuals than their commanding officers? Do you, is, and, or is it a generational issue, do you think? What about that? Well, I think that aspect is is certainly there, that that military has that interesting dichotomy of being a very, you know, hidebound traditionalist organization uh, that has very senior uh, older people at the top, but also being overwhelmingly a young person's organization. And attitudes towards trans people do have massive generational differences. People entering the service today have grown up in a time where trans people have been in the media. They are represented and tend to be in a more positive light than they were in the past. So yes, those differences are out there, uh, but I won't point to any single group and say they're not doing a good job because within both your senior leaders and your, your junior folks, there are pockets or individuals that may not yet be on board. Um, but as a whole, I think the military is doing an excellent job because, again, we value performance. And if people are going to be on the team, 
Uh, we want them to be the most successful member of the team uh, that they can. Um, and the military is really starting to get after and understand the value of diversity and inclusion. Um, I've heard the, the the chief of space operations several times, you know, describe uh, diversity using some sports analogies uh, and talk about, you know, if you had a football team that was composed of nothing but tight ends, how many games would you win? Um, <laughs> And it's it's kind of the same for our teams. We need those diverse perspectives, those diverse backgrounds, ways of thinking uh, that, you know, are going to enable us to fight and win wars in the future. Imagine that. And what tell us about Sparta what, and relative to that, what can allies and trans people do now? And and how, how do we move forward and tell us about the organization Sparta? Yeah, so Sparta was an, an organization formed uh, to provide peer support to transgender people serving in the military, but also to be that education and advocacy organization uh, where we can push for these open and inclusive policies. So Sparta is a, a nonprofit uh 501c3 organization uh, where I am currently the, the president of the organization. And so we have about 13 or 1400 transgender service members that we make sure understand what policy is, how we can help them navigate it and provide mentorship from people that have been there and gone through these processes. So the people just coming out or people that want to get into the service understand what they're looking at. Uh, importantly, though, we're also working that angle to push for that legislation that will enshrine the opportunity to serve ah. into law. Um, and, and allies have been incredibly important to Sparta and trans people over the years. Uh, Sparta was formed with the help of a number of amazing LGB allies who saw that trans people had been left out of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Mm. They embodied that military ethos of leave no one behind, um, and they helped make it happen. They helped Sparta get into the places where decisions are made, show that transgender service members were competent, um, and really made a difference. So cannot stress the value of allies enough. Legislation. You mentioned legislation. What, what is that specifically? Is there something that's alive now that uh, people can find out about and Members of Congress so listen when their constituents call them. They really do. Go ahead. They absolutely do. And while there is nothing um, right now, as, as Congress attempts to to close out this year's set of bills, uh, the push really will, is going to happen next year. Uh, the House twice previously passed language, um, which was referred to as the Truman Amendment, uh, that would have supported open trans service, uh, but it didn't make it into the final passage of the, the National Defense Authorization Act. So we'll be looking for something similar next year. Uh -huh. um, but as you said, uh, members absolutely do listen to their constituents. Um, I had the pleasure of, of working for a year as a legislative fellow on, on Capitol Hill, and I will always remember uh, one, one instance where our congresswoman was considering, you know, whether or not to support uh, a bill. And she asked if any of the constituents called. And we said, ma'am, one person called and they are in favor. She said, you know what, if that person cared enough and was passionate about it, well, I will be in favor of this too. So sometimes it is as little as one call, Absolutely. one email that will make a difference with our legislators. So if people want to keep track of that upcoming work in 2022, I'm guessing there's some website you can point people to to help keep track and help keep it moving forward. 
Yeah, absolutely. I would encourage people to check out Sparta's website at spartapride.org. Um, other organizations, which I'm sure will be be involved heavily in in working for these things, are the the Modern Military Association of America, uh, the oh. Transgender American Veterans Association, and any number of others. Because this is a team effort. Sparta doesn't do it alone. Trans service members don't do it alone. Right. Uh, but when the advocacy community can come together uh, and work on some of these things, uh, we can really make a difference. We can make a difference. And, and you know, sometimes these are these can be pretty dark times right now with, with uh, so many different things. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Brie Fram. It's optimistic. It's uplifting. We're getting there. There's some good news every now and then, but it takes a lot of work and persistence and effort. Brie Fram, the new book is called With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words. Thank you so much for talking with us and, and for the work you're doing, I will say. Thanks, Bert. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Changes. 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 
Chase time. 